everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Ask yourself this simple question. What do you say to yourself when you fail? Your inner monologue and self-talk may tell you everything you need to know about how you deal with setbacks. Not only that, it can explain why you struggle with your performance gains. Despite the crew's mantra that shame is an incredible motivator, we learned from Dr. Kristen Neff that we may have been approaching motivation from a very poor angle. Shocker. This week, the meathead mentality takes a backseat to a little something called self-compassion. Here it is, episode 410. Trick or treat, Tex. Happy Halloween, Luke. What are you dressing up as? A werewolf? (laughs) (laughs) I actually picture Tex more like dressing up as little Bo Peep. No, no way. <laughs> with uh, who's lost her sheep with a shepherd? I got, I got options. Are you going Don Johnson again? I have Don Johnson. Obviously, in the back you've been doing Don Johnson repeater. Yeah, oh, like I you've been doing that, that since college. I got that money suit, uh-huh. the leisure suit, yeah. suit. Uh, yeah, but then been, there's the Ace Ventura, uh, where he plays freaking uh, Courtney Cox's brother, uh-huh. football player. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I always like the uh, in Ace Ventura when she when uh, Finkel is like. Hello, pet dick. <laughs> Dude, Gun, that, gotta, that is. We gotta rewatch. That is yeah, one of my favorite Freddy, lines. Yeah. The whole Finkel is Einhorn with like the your uh, gun the plunger. is into my hip. <laughs> like the plunger on his face. Finkel is Einhorn. Yeah. Oh god, dang. That's a uh, that. Uh, that's another movie you could make today. Well, nineteen ninety four, the greatest movie year of all time. Like, go yeah. on. Uh, well, I'm planning on. Uh, I'm going to starve myself and go for the Dallas Buyers Club look. You know. McConaughey. That's what the mustache is for. Mm. You don't think it's going to work? And why you haven't lifted weights in a year? Uh, uh, I just bench pressed two or three times. <laughs> Dude, up there. I'll, I'll, I'll usually come in and Luke's working on like, you know, level 94 of Supple Leopard. And he's mm-hmm. like doing these weird back. I'm like, oh my God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If I could take a video right now. Oh, I'm, I'm well aware. I'm <laughs> well aware. The, You're like, enough of this, Xanis. I know. It, but it helps. I got to say. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for another episode of the Premier Podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Zero. That's right. What are we talking about today, Tex? Self-compassion. We're what taking it, a deep dive. Yeah, what an interesting topic. I think it is interesting because, like, if you... I can't help but think of the CrossFit games going on right now in CrossFitters. And how I truly believe that I think there's a lot of self-loathing in CrossFit yeah, that I like do. they're they're basically torching themselves mm-hmm. and beating themselves up because of some emotional imaginary slight that they're somehow writing the wrong. Like I, this is their suffering through or salvation through suffering. Yeah, yeah. I guess I kind of do. But not everybody. First off, I'm not like saying, but I think a, some of the like really high performers is like, oh my gosh, but. <laughs> But there's different. There's would they would would the top performing CrossFit athletes not have any self compassion? I would I say know. no. We should have them take the score. You guys keep going because I forgot the charger. So stall for me. Ready? But go. There, there's layers to what Luke's mentioning. So people find that through layers like cake or like onions. You're not wrong. Food. People then put this in a position to find compassion through food alcohol, even sports. Imagine the NFL fans that would kick their own ass 
like in the stands, just beating up other Eagles people because yeah, no, it, it it was crazy. We would stand out there at TV timeouts and watch people just absolutely annihilate and kick their like beat up everybody, and we would think like this is insane, right? But, but they're I, lacking uh, this but, but, uh, topic today. But what I've come to the conclusion is, I think a lot of people don't like themselves. So they do things to punish themselves, like uh, I'm gonna eat myself to bedridden, or I'm not, you know, I'm gonna starve, you know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna... So I think people look for different ways to punish themselves. Um, and I think what the talk about today is great is like, you know, self compassion, realizing that you know you have a soul and you are a human and you're mm-hmm. deserving of love. Is it they don't like themselves, or do you think they just don't know how to be compassionate? Towards themselves, a, a range, and where like, yeah. where I took a lot of the information today was applied to athletes' perspective mm-hmm. because you have this desire to be perfect, as unrealistic and unattainable as it is. You still want to improve in your skill and ability to reach that point, and you're going to mm-hmm. fall short of your expectation. But how can you still progress in a healthy manner and fail better? And fail better. Fail more. Fail mm-hmm. often. Oh, yeah, all the time. Fit hard fail. Fail hard. Fail hard. It's like hard cider. <clears throat> you buying? Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Hard seltzer. <laughs> yeah. oh, wasn't that your nickname in college? Hard seltzer? No, it was... was uh, uh, two years ago. Let's see. What, what could it be? I'll figure it out by the next show. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we have Dr. Kristen Neff on, who we were able to connect through... John Howard, which is a, a podcast alumni, texts in working with John and the group over there, heard her name come up, right? Is that how it kind of shook out, Tex? Yeah, and it was an appropriate topic, just the the population I'm currently working with in terms of athletes. Yeah, yeah. And I, X's and O's, okay, it's a starting point, but then there is this level of, I'm not sure how to put these kids in a position to, to teach them yet. So mm-hmm. it's a younger group of 13 years old, where I was used to more college sport level. So here I am in this younger group, but it's more important. And I've, I've reorganized my coaching values to attitude first. So my progress progression and in, in perspective with the middle school age, attitude, then athleticism, and then concern ourselves with the X's and the O's. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the approach that I take into each session. How's it working? It's well, the, this is evolving, John, as I, go through games and we don't do well. <laughs> but does, it, does it take you back to when you were playing? And Well, that that is a great... So I am thinking back. I started f- playing football for the first time in seventh grade. And then these kids are starting lacrosse for the first time in seventh grade. They're not good. I wasn't good. So trying to go through that football journey to... You guys played football in seventh grade in school? Uh-huh. Middle wow. school. It's, it's the same here, yeah. Wow, yeah, we, we didn't, uh, there was like Pop Warner until high school and then like organized in high school. Well, well welcome to Texas, man. Uh, Ca- Cash will face that. I'm sure he'll get recruited. And uh, But yeah, seventh grade formal sports starts wow. in volleyball, uh, football for the boys and the girls, and then basketball is winter. And spring, I think, is just track in middle school. We had middle school, sixth grade, we had um, school-sponsored sports wow. in sixth grade. Oh, I didn't, yeah, but that's yeah. where the schlubs played who couldn't make weight on Pop Warner. Mm. Where all the studs played. In middle school, Pop Warner? Yeah. Yeah, middle school was Pop Warner. So mm-hmm. I played basketball. And grade uh, school for us. Yeah, I played basketball and baseball. And I, I didn't play football until high school. I thought it was stupid. 
That was a dumb sport. Just like a bunch oh, of be- big people running were, around pushing each other yeah, down. Yeah, if you were like a big ogre kid <laughs> that had an early growth spurt, it was awesome. <laughs> you're better than everybody. It's easy. Yeah, you're out there and with then the, they all got bigger. And then you're oh, out there with a mustache in seventh grade. You're like, I'm killing these kids. I benched 225. That was Joe Alvarez. He had like one just man-child. Yeah. Who was also the guy who, the nose tackle who held on that one uh, play that oh, we talked oh, about. Oh, you're with your touch you guys, Have you guys seen it? I'll show you the thumbnail I put together for uh, that YouTube video. It's pretty sweet. I imagine it's you scoring a touchdown. Or Kind of. Yeah, not really. <laughs> Except it's weird as he's running, all of a sudden he put in some movie magic and he's actually floating on the wings of angels. Mm-hmm. It's and it's you guys. <laughs> uh, you know what? Two angel wings. I, I feel warmth. <laughs> I feel compassion. And you, you know what? I'm ready to get back out Let's there. Let's do it. Then, so Kristen Neff, she's associate professor at University of Texas right. right here locally. Mm-hmm. And we deep dive into a lot of cool things and appropriate that we can teach athletes to fail better but mm-hmm. we we go into uh, parenthood we yeah. go into yeah. personal yeah. self-compassion so all over the place for a fun one and she's a not just one book she's got a, a lot of uh, books out there a lot of research that so. book that you t- uh, the book that we that you uh, recommended I check out on Amazon for free that has like yeah. over 5,000 pages well they aren't pages it's like ebook yeah on like the, the Kindle yeah it. but it's uh it's Nevertheless, it's tense. Yeah. Like a few things. Well, I'm going to need uh, you guys to read that and then explain it to me in two minutes. <laughs> or maybe well, I'll... Yes. Kristen Neff, search self-compassion. You get yeah, the free one at Amazon digitally, Kindly. But then if, yeah, order it, throw her some, a few bucks and give her the time in this episode. Yeah, it's a good one. Should we listen? Let's do it. Ready, go. Well, Kristen, thanks for hopping on Power Athlete Radio with us. We're excited to get going and and venture into kind of like the the scary depths of self-compassion as it relates to hard-charging dudes and chicks who just seem to be banging weights because they hate I themselves. feel like these two things are kind of juxtaposed from where, um, kind of like my point of view, but I'm excited to dig into it. Uh, Doc, we have a, a kind of a commonality in that I went to Berkeley, so I was there 94 through 98. And then got, my, or I'm sorry, 94 through 97, I got a, um, uh, a degree in rhetoric and then I got a master's in education. And then I went to go play in the NFL for 10 years. So um, we may have been in the school of education at the same time, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, school of education 90 through 90 to 97. Oh, okay. Yeah, I graduated in 97, and then I did my master's in 98. John, um, Herb yes, Simons. Yeah, uh, oh. Herb, Herb Simons was my advisor and Derek Van Rien. Nice. Great. Yeah. So, yeah, I saw that uh, link up. So that's uh, it's always good to run into more Berkeley people doing amazing stuff. Yes. All right. <laughs> so why don't we start out, Kristen? Why don't you give our audience just a little bit background on you? Um, pretty, accom- pretty accomplished author, uh, focusing mostly in self-compassion. So, like, how did this whole thing start? And, I mean, I'm sure it's a wild ride, and we're excited to dig into this thing. Yeah. So, uh, well, I actually first learned about self-compassion at my last year of my PhD at UC Berkeley. Um, Basically, my life was a mess. I I had just gotten a divorce. It was really messy. I was feeling a lot of stress about after devoting seven years of my life for a PhD, would I get a job? (laughs) Didn't look too promising at the time. Um, And so I thought I would learn mindfulness meditation to help deal with my stress. Um, and luckily for me, the first night I went to the class, the woman leading the course talked about the importance of self-compassion. 
you know, talked about, I, I knew Buddhists were into compassion, but I'd never really heard of self-compassion before. And so she talked about the fact that when you're struggling or going through a stressful time or, or just feeling bad about yourself in some way, that it's really important to actively support yourself, be kind to yourself, just like you would to a good friend. Um, and, and so I tried it out and I was just really blown away by the immediate impact it made in my ability to cope with my stress. Um, and so I, luckily I did get a job eventually, uh, but this was after doing two years of postdoctoral study actually with a woman who studied self-esteem and self-concept development. And so I was practicing self-compassion, being kind to myself, and I was learning about all the downsides of self-esteem that researchers were discovering. Things like um, the fact that you have to be special and above average just to feel okay about yourself. And the problem with that is that it's a logical impossibility for us all to be above average at the same time, right? So it sets up all these mechanisms where we're always comparing ourselves to other, others, you know, is he stronger than I am? Is she prettier than I am? Is he smarter than I am? Those types of social comparisons, which actually get in the way of connecting with others. That's a problem. Um, an even bigger problem is the fact that self-esteem is contingent. In other words, it's there for us when we succeed but what happens when we fail, right? <laughs> we fall flat on our face just when we need it most, our self-esteem deserts us, right? And that's precisely where self-compassion steps in. When we fail, when we're feeling bad, we, we, we support ourselves like we're good, we, we good, a good friend. Hey, everyone fails, it's okay, you can try again, right? And so um, while, while I was doing my postdoc, I, I realized that self-compassion was such a, uh, useful alternative to self-esteem in terms of feeling good about yourself. Because it wasn't contingent on success, it wasn't contingent on other people liking you, it wasn't contingent on being better than anyone else. You know, the only thing you really need to be, to have self-compassion is to be a flawed human being. Well, you know, I can do that. <laughs> Everyone can do that, right? And so when I got that position, my, my current position at University of Texas at Austin, um, I started studying it and the rest is history, so to speak. I've had the opportunity to, to work through one of your books. You had many options online and just randomly picked one, but the, you did an amazing job introducing the components of self-compassion. And I think that's a great way to lead off our conversation. Could you outline the three that you presented or that, that your research has, has found? Yes, yes. And so there really are um, three different components of self-compassion. And so self-compassion is really a mindset, you know, a mindset toward ourselves when we're struggling in some way. And all three components need to be there. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. If one of the components isn't there, the mind state isn't so healthy or stable. Um, and so actually the, the first component of self-compassion is mindfulness. Right. A lot of people have heard about mindfulness. Mindfulness refers to the ability to be aware of what's occurring in the present moment, to kind of accept the fact that it is occurring without fighting against it, like banging your head against the wall of reality. Um, and it's also a type of kind of equilibrated stance. In other words, we're aware of when we struggle, but we aren't lost in it. We aren't like lost in the drama of it either. We're kind of just aware of things in a more objective, balanced manner. And so in order to have self-compassion, we need to be mindful of our pain, right? If we just avoid it, like I'm not going to think about it, or I'm just going to carry on and press through, then we have no ability to pause and say, hey, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I need a little support right now, right? 
On the other hand, if we're just lost in the drama, you know, woe is me, this is the worst thing ever, then we also have no space to step outside of ourselves and give ourselves kindness. So that's really the first step. Um, and then this, you might say the second step is to give ourselves kindness as opposed to harsh um, criticism. Um, my research shows that most people are actually much harsher toward themselves than they are to other people in their lives. Um, actually, a lot of people are harder on themselves than they are to the people in their lives that they don't even like very much, right? We often say incredibly mean, um, defeatist things to ourselves that we would never say to anyone else we cared about. And so with self-compassion, you know, we turn that around and we, we treat ourselves like a friend with kindness, encouragement, and support, as opposed to just calling ourselves names. Um, but the third element that's really important that some people don't intuitively think about um, is common humanity, right? So what makes compassion different than pity? Pity is a sense of separation. You know, if I pity you, I feel sorry for you, but somehow you're separate from me. Whereas if I have compassion for you, it's like, hey, I've been there. You know, there's a sense of connectedness in the experience. And it's the same with self-compassion. Um, we remember that the human experience is imperfect, right? All people are imperfect. All people lead imperfect lives. All people make mistakes. This is kind of, this is a plan we signed up for. I mean, yes, some people suffer more than others. It's not saying that all people are exactly the same. And yet one thing we share is that making mistakes, failure, difficulty, this is kind of, this is part of life. In other words, often when we make a mistake, we feel like everyone else in the world is living a normal, perfect life. And it's just me who's blown it, right? Or it's just me who can't meet my goals. And when we, when we think that way, we start to feel isolated. When we feel isolated and cut off from others, it actually makes things a lot worse. Not only are we suffering, we feel all alone in our struggles. Um, and we don't need to. So self-compassion means remembering that this is something we all share. We're all imperfect. We're all doing the best we can. And when we feel more connected to others in our experience, we actually feel strengthened by those connections. So all, all three are really important. How do, how do folks find themselves in like this default pattern of lacking self-compassion? You said... You know, what you had mentioned is you observed that a lot of people are much harder on themselves than they would be their, their mortal enemy, right? Like, yes, where does yeah. that, what happened? The vast majority. Well, I think there are two main reasons for the fact that we're, we tend to be kinder to others than to ourselves. Um, the first is just plain physiological, okay, our nervous system reaction. So when I, when I fail or I make a mistake or something difficult happens in my life, um, I feel threatened at some point. You know, even if the, the reason I feel threatened is because I look in the mirror and I don't like what I see, you know, a threat to our self-concept is registered by the body the same way as a threat to our physical safety, right? So when we feel threatened, we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. But of course, if the problem is ourself, we turn fight, flight, or freeze inward, and we either fight ourselves, we beat ourselves up, thinking somehow that's going to make us correct our behavior so that we'll be safe. Uh, or else we flee in shame, like we isolate ourselves in shame, like we kind of kind of check out of our bodies as, as a way to feel safe from maybe the perceived um, anger or disapproval of others. Uh, or else we freeze, we get stuck, we ruminate, you know, we get stuck over and over and over again. I'm not adequate or this is not okay or whatever the thought is. That's also a safety response because we feel threatened. Now, when your best friend fails at something important to you, you aren't so personally threatened. 
right? And so in a way you're more able to draw on an, another safety system we have, one that we're more used to engaging with others and that's um, uh, the care system, right? So as mammals, all human beings, our physiology is built so that when we're in the, in, in the presence of our parents or, or other close um, community members who care for us and support us, our parasympathetic nervous system gets activated. So, so we're, when we're in fight or flight, it's our sympathetic nervous system, you know, cortisol, adrenaline, we're really hyped up. Parasympathetic is heart rate variability, oxytocin, opiates, we calm down, we feel safe. That actually gets triggered when we feel cared for and supported, right? And so the cool thing about self-compassion is that we can, just like we feel cared for and supported when a friend is there for us, we can actually do that for ourselves. And so, but, but this system is not triggered so quickly or automatically, which is why our, our habitual response is to beat ourselves up. So that's one reason. And then the second reason is just, it's just cultural. We aren't, we aren't taught that self-compassion is a good thing. You know, we have all these beliefs, like we think it's gonna undermine our motivation. We think it's weak, we think it's selfish, we think it's self-indulgent, um, all of which are completely false, <laughs> but um, our culture doesn't let us know that. And so we have a lot of kind of wariness about self-compassion. Is this really a good thing? I'm not so sure. And that also serves as a block. Are there other cultures globally that are more in tune with the concept, more forgiving, I guess? Yeah, so there are some cultures who are more self-compassionate than others. There's variation. Um, it's not a simple East-West thing, though, for instance. So China and Taiwan, they're very self-critical. In fact, Confucianism, which is prevalent in those cultures, really teaches that it's a good thing to be self-critical. Whereas places like Thailand, which are, which are a little more Buddhist, they kind of you know really emphasize mindfulness and compassion is more of an ethos of life. They tend to be more self-compassionate. Uh, the UK, the United Kingdom is actually very low, <laughs> you know, that kind of stiff upper lift mentality. In the United States, we're, we're kind of in the lower half. So, so there, there are differences um, based on the messages our culture gives us about self-compassion. Doc, when you were speaking, I um, all of a sudden remembered a quote from Mushiashi's book of five rings where it's don't speak ill of yourself or the warrior within will start to believe. Ah, that's, that's lovely. I, I don't know that. That's yeah. wonderful. So as you were saying it, I was like, man, because that's... Uh, I mean, I read that in college and I've read it numerous times. And I always think about like, if you fill yourself full of negative stuff and you are so hard on yourself, then, you know, eventually you start breaking yourself down and, and, uh, you know, become less accomplished in such a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the, the great tragedies. Um, the number one block to self-compassion is people think it will undermine their motivation. Um, it's just the opposite. Self-criticism will undermine your motivation, right? So we know that, I mean, it, it kind of works. It's like a it's like a smoky coal-powered steam engine. It kind of gets you up the hill, but it spits out a lot of black smoke. <laughs> so it leads to things like performance anxiety, fear of failure, um, and undermines your self-confidence. All these things actually work against your ability to achieve your goals. Um, whereas being supportive towards yourself, and, and being supportive doesn't mean like, Oh yeah, you're, everything you do is wonderful because if it's not, it's not kind. You know, kindness is saying, "Hey, you need to change this." So this is something you could work on if you want to be happier. That's what kindness is. But the motivation of kindness comes from a place of encouragement and support, and like, "I believe in you. I got your back." What do you need? How how can we learn from this? It's actually a much more effective and sustainable form of motivation. So is uh, is critique and compassion 
like are those mutually exclusive? Are they at the polar opposites or is there like a relationship oh, between there? Yeah, no, so, so constructive criticism is absolutely part of compassion. So, so for instance, we actually, my, my, I have a dissertation student right now who's working on um, a, a dissertation study training athletes to be more self-compassionate. And it's all framed in this context of, um, you know, what athletes care about is improving their game, right? And she's, she's looking at college level, you know, um, athletes. And if you want to improve your game, whether you're an athlete or whether you're just in life, if you want to improve your game, you need information about what's working for you and what's not working for you, right? And that information when delivered in a way that's constructive and that's helpful, absolutely helps, right? You know, if compassion is the desire to be happy and to alleviate our suffering, we need good information to do so. And so that information we give ourselves, which is, hey, this didn't work out so well, try this, you know, what can we learn from this? Um, that's very, very useful. What's not useful is saying you're stupid, you're lazy, I hate you. You know, shame is not exactly a great motivator. <laughs> and also what, what shame and self-criticism does is it tends to focus on ourself as opposed to what we're doing, right? If I just think I'm bad, I'm lame, I'm not really thinking so carefully about, well, what actually, what, what is it about my behavior that I might be able to change or improve, right? Um, and, and so actually, just like a parent, a parent needs to give good constructive feedback to their child. A coach needs to give good constructive feedback, you know, to whoever they're coaching. Otherwise, they wouldn't be good at their job. But just saying you suck, <laughs> which is which is the way most of us try to motivate ourselves is not very effective or useful. So one thing you mentioned earlier, uh, kind of rewinding, is uh, you had talked about kind of the negative response and how we find ourselves trapped in like rumination when we perceive friction with somebody else. But then, um, and, and as you kind of continued on, there's you talked about the physiological response to being in the environment of people who care about you. Is that a yes. perception as well? Like, are the is it just this perception reality matrix that that allows us to respond to these environments? And I guess right. I, you, we, we we hope our parents care about us and like our spouses yeah. well, and but, you know our, our close knit friends. But I like I think where we sometimes uh, lose focus, and I know this as a parent, is um, a lot of times as a kid you internalize everything where you think everything has to do with you. Mom and dad are fighting; it must be about me. And uh, yes. I've realized having kids that um, and by nature and, and evolution, they're just selfish beings. Like they, you know, everything, I need everything <laughs> now. And then as you grow older and you can almost see like developmental levels come in when they start understanding that the world is bigger than just them. Like as a baby, he's just focused. Um, that idea of like ever internalizing everything. Um, so like mom and dad fight or, uh, you know, dad comes home and he's had a bad day and he takes it out or he's, you know, gruff or whatnot. It must be something I did. And I think like growing up in that and, um, you know, if I have a bad day or whatnot, I tell my kids, I'm like, hey, this has nothing to do with you guys. This is, you know, daddy dealing with Luke and Tex all day who, um, you know, beat me in ping <laughs> pong or down. something. Grind them down, Tex. Yeah, beat, you beat me a game in ping pong. Uh, but it's pretty fascinating that uh, we kind of grow up in this model. And then as we get older, we don't necessarily end up with, I would say, like the tools to be able to expand. And then that's kind of where you get a little bit older and you start realizing, like doing some like personal work and realizing that uh, um, like 
I was trying to explain this to my daughter and see if this makes sense. Uh, I think we're so hyper-focused on ourselves. Like, um, you know, uh, I'm wearing two different shoes today and, you know, everybody's going to make fun of me and nobody realizes that you're wearing two shoes. So I try to always explain to my daughter, I'm like, most people are just trying to get through life without tripping and falling and looking like an idiot. Their focus is on themselves. Don't worry what other people think about you. They're not even focused on this stuff. And I, I, I wonder if that's, uh, you know, something evolutionary, how that comes up where we're so focused on what we think others have to, have to say about us. Yeah, well, again, I think it really just comes down to safety, right? So we are social beings and, you know, evolutionarily, if we got kicked out of the group or excluded from the group, we'd be dead, right? <laughs> we can't really survive on our own. And so I think it's a, a natural reaction. And there, are, there is um, a developmental progression where people are more able to take the perspectives of others and then they become a little less focused and they can start to integrate the concern with themselves and others as they get older. Um, but, but back to the point is, is it perceived support or actual support? It's really both, it's really both. So for instance, um, there are some kids with very loving supportive parents who for whatever reason aren't able to take that in and might still hate themselves for, for a lot of reasons. It may be just the way their brains interpret the world. It may be their peer interactions. I mean, it can be very complex. Um, so so there, there are many people in our lives. We have friends, we have family, you know, we have our parents, but we also have ourselves, right? And actually our internal voice is the one we listen to most frequently, most of the day. And so sometimes we're projecting, what do other people think of us? But often we're just saying to ourselves, what do I think of myself? And I don't, I don't like what I see. And so if you are like a, an enemy on the inside, even if you have friends and supportive family, if you're cutting yourself down all the time on the inside, that's going to be your reality. You know, on the other hand, like people maybe who grew up with very harsh parents, very critical parents, even abusive parents, what self-compassion can do is it can help you kind of reparent yourself. You know, maybe your parents, because whatever was going on with them, maybe they weren't able to meet your deeds and to treat you like you were a val valuable, worthy person, but you can meet your own needs and you can treat yourself like a valuable, worthy person. And so what we're kind of doing is we're, we're treating ourselves the way we, we would ideally like to be treated by others and the way we would ideally like to treat others. Um, but for most people, there's, there's a big gap between how they treat themselves and how they treat others. So, so the main goal is just to kind of close that gap. Um, and, and, and it makes a remarkable difference in our ability to cope and achieve what we want in life. Do you have any tools on how maybe someone who has, doesn't have a high level of introspection, like how can you identify that gap? Like, is it a journaling activity? Is there, any, is there an app for that? Yeah, you know, no. <laughs> there, there it's a website. Go is. there, pay ninety nine ninety nine. There probably is, but it's, it's just very, a very, very simple way to, to figure out. Well, one a, if you want, you can go to my website, selfcompassion.org, and I've got a self-compassion a scale you can fill out. It'll spit you out a score if you want to find out, you know, if you're low or high. Um, a very easy thing is just to, um, you know, just ask yourself. Well, when I have when I have good when a good friend comes to me and they're upset about something, maybe they failed or they are feeling inadequate or some way, what types of things do I usually say to my good friends? You know, what tone of voice do I use? Uh, you know, what's the message I send to my friends? And then you just ask the same question for yourself. You just actually have to think about it a little bit. But yeah, actually, what do I say to myself when I fail? What are, what are the types of things that I say? What's my internal tone of voice? Is it harsh? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it encouraging? 
right? And then you can just kind of see, is there a difference? Uh, and most people, actually, the vast majority of people find there's a very big difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's really um, the, the place to start is just to become aware of your inner voice. And for some people, it's so habitual, they don't even notice it. It's like just this constant nag, nag, nag in their head all the time. Well, and they think, that nag is, <laughs> they think the nag is a good thing. Well, I, I mean, um, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I still hear it. Um, yeah. Doc, so, can, uh, like, uh, I'm having a hard time, like, on the, like, the splitting of the hairs between, like, self-compassion and self-esteem. I remember when I was in elementary school, and mm -hmm. um, you might have heard of this, but there was a program in California called Project PSE, or no, uh -huh. Project Self-Esteem. Yes. And we had like in elementary school, we had to go into like the gymnasium and they had to speak all these mantras. And it was like this, like really weird, awkward stuff for like a elementary school kid to do. And they yeah. did, we did it for a couple of years and then it just ended. And I remember yeah, because research shows it created a generation of narcissists. Well, uh, <laughs> the, that's, that's why they ended the program. Sure, the selfies are about out there. You uh, send them to me and text you, but I'll put them on Instagram. Those are the pantless ones. Uh, but the uh, the so it was funny because I remember like we did it for a couple of years and then it ended. And I asked my mom, I'm like, "Hey, mom, we don't have to go into the gym and basically recite all these mantras." And I asked her, I'm like, "How come?" And now I'm thinking, um, I didn't, I've never really asked my mom if she was just bullshitting me, but she said uh, they got rid of the program because the kids that went to junior high school um, were having depression issues and got into drugs. And they all of a sudden have started observing more, uh, like a, a higher rate of drug, and they had a big district meeting. And they got rid of it because they had pulled all this funding from uh, the D.A.R.E. program into yeah. this this deal. And my mom was like, yeah, all the kids were depressed and because uh, they had suicides, they had drugs, and they stemmed it back to this project self-esteem deal so i it's, it's probably not only due to that but yeah so the, so um, self-esteem is actually quite different than self-compassion so self-esteem is a judgment a positive or negative evaluation of self-worth you know i'm a good person and these affirmations is i'm a good person and every day i'm getting stronger and stronger yeah. but that may or may not accord with reality. Actually, the research shows that positive affirmations help if you already have high self-esteem, but if you have low self-esteem, it actually just makes you feel worse because mm -hmm. it's like, I don't buy that. So self-compassion is not a judgment or an evaluation of worth. It's simply a way of being kind and supportive to yourself, especially when you fail or are feeling inadequate, right? Mm -hmm. Self-esteem, we need to feel better than others to feel okay about ourselves. Self-compassion is it's not, it's about feeling connected to others, not better than others. Self-esteem is contingent on success. Self-compassion is unconditional. And so the research shows, for instance, if you compare the two head to head, and this is done either through self-report scales or like if you induce a self-compassionate mood in an experimental setting or induce like high self-esteem by saying, think of all your positive qualities and why you're so great. Um, self-compassion is a better motivator right? Because you can deal better with failure. Um, you're more accurate about yourself. When, when you have to protect your self-esteem, you're going to be invested in not seeing yourself clearly. It's going to be like the hall of distorting mirrors because you can't handle it if you see the truth. So you're going to project onto other people. It's going to be difficult to see yourself clearly. And if you don't see yourself clearly, how are you going to learn to grow, right? 
So self-compassion means you aren't ego defensive. Your sense of worth is much more stable over time. It doesn't go up and down. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's kind of, you might say it's an unconditional source of self-worth that doesn't involve judgment or evaluation, which is part of the reason it's so powerful. So not Instagram and social media. I would say that's more self-esteem. <laughs> exactly, that's self-esteem, right? That's self-esteem. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know why. I, I'm like listening to her and all I can think of is like, God, this sounds like Instagram and social media. Like, let me, pre- let me uh, create this imaginary existence of putting my best best foot forward so I can gather the admiration and the likes of a whole bunch of people I've never met that don't fit within my circle of influence. That's right. And actually most people invest more self-esteem in the um, approval of acquaintances, people they don't know well than like their friends and family who actually know them much better. (laughs) So where where my head kept going for some reason, like I'm thinking of when my wife will come to me and maybe it's like a problem with a friend or at work. And like my immediate response is to tend to like, okay, let's workshop this and find a solution, you know? And she's no, no, no. I just want you to kind of listen and support yeah. me. And I keep thinking like, when I, that's what's resonating with me with self-compassion is like, it's not to be critical. It's not to find a desired outcome or possible uh, augment, augmenting the path. It's just like, hang on, chill, baby. Everything's cool. Just give yourself but, some space. But you isn't other that, opportunities. Everything's fine. Isn't that men where it's like, oh, it's broken. Let me fix it. Like, isn't that the mentality? Whereas women will be more like, okay, like how, like, how is this broken deal affecting you? How do you feel about this? Yeah. And so there actually are, are two sides. And actually, I think both are forms of compassion. But I instead of male or female, I like to use the yin and yang metaphor. Okay. Because yin and yang is kind of, you know, all people, men and women have both a yin and a yang side. Uh, so, so the yin side of things is more of a nurturing, accepting energy. It's, it's what allows us to kind of be with things as they are. Considered traditionally more feminine, but it's also mindfulness. You know, so it's for men and women. And then the young side of things is more the active, forceful, you know, get up and do it energy. Um, and in terms of compassion, it means actually taking action to alleviate suffering. So for instance, sometimes to be compassionate to someone, we need to just be with them and listen to them, not say anything, just be a compassionate presence. But if you see someone in a building, in a fire, in a, a building on fire, you don't want to like just. I'm just going to be with you. Oh, I really feel for your pain. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, sometimes I want you to get you, out of there. <laughs> yes, I, I feel. I really feel for you. Yeah. Sometimes we need to take action to alleviate suffering, and both are necessary. And actually, in fact, both are necessary. It's not one or the other. It's kind of finding the right balance between the two. And so, for instance, giving advice uh, when it's wanted, right. it actually is a form of caring. I really care about you. How can I support you? Um, but if it's not balanced with the yin, if it's like just advice and no sense of, hey, I feel you, that's really hard, then it can feel imbalanced. But at the same time, if it's just, hey, I feel you, but no offer of support or concrete action steps to do something about it, that also might not be that helpful. I so do- it's almost the balance and integration of yin and yang that's important. I do feel like maybe, and this this is probably bias, right? But you know, we're we're all athletes here. Most of us thrived in our youth. Some of us took it to the professional level and had a glorious career. Um, but I think the mindset is if you if you're on a team that you know, like that cares about one another, you like you can kind of like. I just think as an athlete, I don't want to. I don't want to have to deal with the yin. Just give me the yang, baby. Just like tell me what's wrong. Tell me what I got to do. I'm ready to do it because. We've gone through so much work to build the camaraderie of the team, like in double days and, you know, like shared suffering and things like that, where it, 
like I feel like it's kind of assumed. Is that is that real or is that just me being uninformed? Well, no, I think that it's real in the sense that that's what people do, mm -hmm. right? That's what people do. Um, they tend to just focus on how do I fix it, um, and athletes especially. So, so like I say, I have this dissertation student, and the way she's selling her self-compassion program to the athletes, she calls it fail better. Because <laughs> athletes want to do anything better. And of course, failure is part of being an athlete, right? Constantly, if you're, if you're playing basketball or anything, you're constantly failing. And what's going to determine whether or not you succeed or win the game is how do you deal with that failure? You know, do you get caught in that failure? Do you judge yourself? Or maybe you just like completely shut downs in a way that actually makes you less connected to what's happening. So you lose awareness, and then you aren't as sensitive to what's going on around you. Or do you actually fail better, which means you use the information. First of all, so actually, I get it. If you don't mind, I'm going to um, just describe to you this little practice she developed for athletes yeah. called Ooh. the resilient reset. Yeah, it's like pushing the reset button when you fail, and it can be done on the spot very quickly um, in an athletic context. Okay, so um, let's see, the first thing you do is just you just acknowledge any emotions that have arisen, right? So let's say I don't know, let's say you miss the winning field goal for your team, and you cut, you know, your kicker, and that you miss the field goal and you've blown it. Okay. So actually, that's not a good example because then the game's over. Let's say early on in the second quarter, <laughs> yeah. you miss a field goal and the game's still going, but you, you set the team back, right? So the first thing is to acknowledge the emotions with mindfulness, right? So just say, hey, that hurt, ouch. You know, just kind of give, give awareness to it. We want to be aware of it. We don't want to run away with it. But if we, if we don't realize that maybe we're feeling really emotional, then it can come back and bite us and we might get stuck in the negative thought. Oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. And once we get stuck in the failure, then we can't continue to play, right? So we want to acknowledge it, but with mindfulness, not, not make too much of it, not make too little, little of it. So that's the first step. And then the second step. Doc, we, we used to call that the fear loop. Um, okay. when, I the, played, when, when I played in the NFL, um, uh -huh. I would watch guys get beat. And then instead of like, um, so I have two dogs, I have two pit bulls. And when they battle and they play, they stand up and they shake their ears to like clear off conflict. And so what I would do is if I ever got beat or anything, I would kind of just like shake my head and my hands to try to like clear out conflict and like just try to reset. And I would watch guys get into this fear loop where like, the worst thing that they imagine happening becomes their reality over and over again. And they, they don't know how to get out of this fear loop. And, uh, my, my whole thing was, um, like, uh, I can't change the past. I can't live in the future. It's gotta be in the present. And what I was, what I would observe is these guys would get stuck in this fear loop where the past and what they feared happened would, would just keep happening to them. And I was like, you got to clear off conflict. You got to shake it off. You have to, you know, and you start giving all these like common stupid coaching things, but it really was this mindset of like, just like a wave crashing, like another one's going to come and they're just going to keep crashing and they keep going back out. And, uh, I watch guys ruin an entire career. I watch guys get cut in like in minutes because they got stuck in this fear loop. That's right. And, uh, it was a scary thing and, an, and a really interesting thing to observe. And, um, like football is a really interesting game in that uh empathy will be the death of you like it's almost to the point where like if somebody could give you a pill where you didn't have empathy then you wouldn't worry about what's happening to the guy against you you wouldn't happen to what's happening to this guy and you could just go and like clear focus on what you know, almost like a serial killer in such a way 
And uh, that was something that I developed was this lack of empathy where you'd see people in this fear loop and be like, this dude's going to get cut, get him out of here. Like, I, I, I just can't observe what's happening to him because I'm going to get stuck in it. Yeah, well, so, so the, there's a couple of responses to that. There's also like what you do on the field in the moment versus what you do when you get home, right? So because if, if difficult emotions come up, they need to be processed um, at some point, right? Because um, that could lead to other sorts of stress. Let's say if you really had no empathy, then that would be bad for you in the long term. Mm. Although maybe it'd be good for you in the moment. Sure. But, but so that's the first step. That's really mindfulness, right? I talked about the three components of self-compassion. That's the mindfulness. It's just, it's there, you acknowledge it, but you don't get lost in it, right? You don't get stuck in it. But there's actually two more things. Um, the second is common humanity, remembering that, hey, making mistakes is part of the game, right? So often, and this may happen, and you can let me know if, if that, this happens in you know um, pro situations, but there's always like this sense of, you know, I'm not supposed to make mistakes, right? Like, and maybe people don't want me to make mistakes, but if you get into that loop of, I'm not supposed to make a mistake, there's something wrong with me for making a mistake, then you start to feel isolated and that starts shutting you down and that feeds the fear loop. Whereas if you say, hey, made a mistake, it happens, let's move forward, right? So it's kind of acknowledging the humanity of it. And then the third, which is really important, is kindness. Like, I got your back, you can do this, I'm here for you, warmth, right? So emotional warmth. So you talk about empathy, but empathy in terms of towards yourself, kindness, warmth, what you're doing when you give yourself kindness and warmth and like, you might just like, hey dude, it's okay, got it, you know, and then I, it's all right, and then keep going forward. The warmth actually changes your physiology because the warmth reduces sympathetic activity and increases parasympathetic activity. Feeling cared for makes us feel safe, which makes us feel calmer, which makes us able and more able to do well. So you really need all three. So you can go through very quickly mindfulness, you know, okay, that hurts. It sucks. Everyone makes mistakes. I got this and I'll, it'll be okay. And I care about myself anyway. And if you do those three in this resilient reset, it's a really powerful tool for coming back from failure. So then I would say as a coach, if you're able to facilitate that, um, yes. Like, it, can that be an external stimulus, or do, like, as it would a coach try to trigger that internally, or is it like, is it both? Well, so um, and again, so she, again, she's just doing the research now, but she's involving coaches and the players because the idea is it becomes part of the team culture. Like, mm -hmm. and the idea is everyone kind of finds a series of words that work for them personally, and you know, some people have different types of language that make sense. And then they could kind of encourage each other, hey, do the resilient reset. You need a resilient reset right now or something like that to kind of support each other to, to bring compassion to themselves in the moment. Uh, and that really strengthens it because again, you know, if, you're, if your players are supporting you and remind you to support yourself, that also helps. And if the coaches do it as well. And as in applying this, I certainly see the opportunity is the weight room because the weight room is set up for failure underneath the barbell or uh, not repeating a certain jump length or a certain speed that you just ran or skill yeah. that you just executed. So a strength coach can step in and then you start to create and make this a, a mental habit. I imagine right. that's, that's what she's doing. We, we got a lot of friends on the Texas strength staff, so I'm curious and I can, can reach out to see if they're executing the, the re resilient reset 
Well, I, well you I, know, I, you know, Shaka Smart um, oh, actually is he's we're, we're friends, and he actually contacted me because he liked my work, and so I gave them um, a little coaching session. It was a couple years ago. I wish I could say that it made. <laughs> Just with the championships, we didn't, but nonetheless, um, but yeah. So, so it, they are starting to implement it, um, and it really is just a mindset, understanding that warmth actually facilitates success; it doesn't hinder it. I keep and making the, I, I keep thinking about the division of like a mistake, like um, you know, like because it it's really more complicated than that. Like there's like an assignment, for example, this is my responsibility. Yes. Um, that piece, especially in the NFL and college, like there is no excuse for not knowing what to do. So like if you can't effectively like learn the plays and get in the right position and know this, like yeah. that's pretty unexcusable. Like if a dude didn't know what, what he was supposed to do, like I was going to burn him down. Um, but the other one of like, I know what I'm supposed to do. This person mm-hmm. just does their job better than me and I lose. And like that to me is um, uh, like another really interesting one because and, and, I, and I used to tell young guys all the time, they would come in and, you know, they'd be getting their ass beat. And I'd be like, just do what the coach tells you to do. And if, and if you lose doing exactly what the coach tells you to do, it's on him and not you. And, like, that was, like, a huge moment for a lot of young guys. Because I, I, I always looked at it, like, when I was a young guy, there were older dudes that mentored me. So I always looked at it like, hey, it's my job to mentor them. And I remember one of the guys being like, why are you helping these young guys so much? They might beat you. And I'm like, if they can take my job, then I shouldn't be here. And then I'll go do something else. And like people were blown away. That was my mindset. Uh, but that idea of like, do what your coach to do and do what they're paying you to do and then have confidence in what you're doing. Don't go out there and ad lib and make stuff up. Like do like follow the track. And um, I think like that gives you a self of confidence that I've, I've done the work. I know what I'm supposed to do. Now I just have to press play and do the best I can. And um, when I tell you guys get beat and I'd be like, well, dude, you did everything right that guy just did better than you on that moment. So go back in there and kick his ass on the next one. And I think that was a lot better than guys who would freeze because they didn't know what to do. So right. there's an interesting distinction with that one. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, but just, I can't let go. You kind of said there's no excuses for it. Self-compassion isn't about making excuses. In fact, quite the opposite. Self-compassion allows you to take more responsibility for your mistakes. It's actually self-esteem that leads you to make excuses because you can't own up to it, huh. right? But when you say, yeah, I really blew it. You're right. You know, I would say, yes, you're so right. So if I have self-compassion, I could say, yes, I shouldn't have done that. It was wrong. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean it excuses mistakes, but nonetheless, it's impossible to be superhuman. And maybe some people shouldn't be pros. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you really can't cut it, then that doesn't mean you're a horrible person, right? You do your absolute best. You try your best. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It doesn't mean you've got to slam yourself as somehow being an unworthy person because you couldn't meet your own standards. No, and by I, the way, I agree with it you. doesn't mean it doesn't make you lower your standards either. If you care about yourself, you're going to want to achieve everything you can possibly achieve. You know, just do your best, and what else can we do? More. Do more. No, I'm just kidding. Do more. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you if, have to text you anything? If somebody is uh, like like wanting to get into this and like, um, I mean, does it, it is really the first step, like a pre-step, almost like a realization, like taking the time to actually analyze yourself to be like, why am I so negative? Like, like, why aren't I on in my own corner? Like, this is something I, uh, like I have twin girls that are, that just turned nine and I always talk to them. I'm like, Hey, like, um, if you, if you're going out looking for external, uh, forces to try to give you validation. And I know like nine year olds look at me and like, shut up dad. 
but like <laughs> yeah. the idea of yeah. like, you have to be happy with yourself. Like you have to find joy in the things that you do and know that you're good and smart and all these other things. And until you know that nobody else is going to co-sign on it. So like, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yes, yes, precisely. That's, that's the first step It's just, how is this working for me? I mean, this, the sad part is, is people, there's part of us that thinks that beating ourselves up is helping us. We think it's motivating us. We think it's going to help us be in control of things. You know, we think we're, we're identifying with the part of ourselves that at least knows that what we did was stupid. You know what I mean? It's like part of me is stupid and lame, but at least I know that I'm stupid and lame. So that part of me is better than the part of me who's stupid and lame. I mean, we're, we're kind of crazy that way, right? Um, and so we're, we're doing it because we think at some level it's going to help. And so just really asking yourself, well, is this helping? You know, would I say this to someone I cared about that I was trying to help? And if the answer is no, then why do you think it's going to work for you? <laughs> you know, and then usually that's the first realization um, for people to think about trying to, to do it differently. I feel like and there's a lot of free resources just my website selfcompassion.org like I said you can take a test you can there's exercises there's lots of free resources that people can think about whether or not it's something they want to work on that it seems like a, an exercise that's probably doable for most adults right but how about you know John alluded that he has he has a couple kids I'm mm -hmm. father myself and we know that culturally it seems like this isn't like an autopilot value uh, that yeah. our kids are going to pick up on in their cohort of friends or at school. So it has to happen at home. So what, how can parents start to in, instill this value in their kiddos so that they, they be, are more resilient and more compassionate as they go through life? Uh, yeah, well, so luckily there are a lot of resources now. For instance, we do have a self-compassion program for kids. We have a self-compassion program for um, parents. Uh, we're actually, we've got one well-established for teens. We're working on one now for the little kids. But really the best way a parent can give this gift to their children, and it is a lifelong gift, is by modeling it for their kids, right? So maybe you're, you're careful to be really supportive towards your children. And then when you drop a glass, you say, oh, I'm such an idiot, right? You know, what, what are you actually modeling? Um, and also we know that self-compassion, there's some research that shows it's contagious in the sense that if you hear someone, it's like saying out loud something that's self-compassionate, you are then more likely to be self-compassionate. So parents can actually model self-compassion for their kids by, by, you know, whenever you make a mistake, think, ah, this is a great opportunity to model self-compassion for my kids. Um, and then really once kids are about seven years old and they've they, they have the idea of friendship, that's about when friendship starts developing around seven or eight, that's the time to start talking about being a good friend to yourself. You know, when you talk about what goes into being a good friend, then you can just help them. And there's also some good books like being your own best friend, things like that, that can help children um, get that message. Thanks. I just just have to say though it's not it's not necessarily the case that the kids are going to accept it my son you would think would be so he, he's actually now self-compassionate he's 18 but for many years he was like don't give me that self-compassion bullshit mom you know <laughs> i don't want to accept the pain it's like he was he was hell-bent on like fixing things and being perfect 
But now he's fine. Now that he's 18, he's kind of like, okay, I get it. I guess perfection isn't possible. And I guess it's okay. <laughs> you know? Isn't it really but, draining? So, it, it just feels really draining. Like the idea of perfection and having um, to make sure that everything is always right in this right direction. Like it just feels very like 1950s housewife. Yeah. Where like, it, dinner's it, on, you know, it just feels draining. It's boring too. My, my son's so sweet. He said, you know, I realized it's like, it's like, it's like bland food. If it was perfect, it'd be bland. Mistakes are the spice of life. He actually said that. Isn't that there cool? There you go. Well, that's pretty astute yeah. for a teenage kid. Man, I yeah. Was well, well the, uh, the other interesting one that you brought up that I, I'm, I'm like really resonates and I've, uh, been thinking a ton on this one is failure. Um, yeah. I read, a uh, you know, what was it? Uh, Coddling the American Mind and Angela, uh, Duckworth's book on grit and uh-huh. the one thing that's um really universal is that like if you can and I know you don't want to purposely do this but like the idea of um protecting your kids from failure by being a helicopter parent and coming in and this and um I've actually want my kids to push themselves and I and I don't tell them this but I actually feel better if they don't do well or fail or this wasn't a good experience because I want them to experience failure at a younger age I'm really nervous of a generation or a, a culture where we don't experience failure into our 20s or 30s because somebody's always been there to safety net me. And yeah. um, that's yeah. that's something that's uh, like I think about constantly because, I mean, like I can go back and I can mark the failures in my life as the best teaching moments. Like I almost learned more from failure than I did from the positives and the wins. Absolutely. I mean, that's it's a truism, but it's because it's true. Failure is our best teacher. You know, and so if you really look at failure as an opportunity as a parent or for yourself to really model, okay, well, how do I grow from this? Um, so the first thing is kind of acknowledging the pain of it, right? So you also don't want to do bypass and just say, oh, great, I failed, opportunity to learn. I mean, you first have to say, ouch, that hurts. You know, we got to like validate our pain and be with it because if we ignore it or we skip it and like kind of shove it underneath the rug, it's going to sit there and fester. <laughs> So, ow, that sucks. Oh, man. Okay. All right. That hurts. But it's not the end of the world. Okay. Everyone fails sometimes. What can I learn from this? You know, and kind of, you know, I'm here for myself, that kind of sense of support and care and and, and, uh, kindness as we try again is really what's going to be very impactful in terms of growing from the field. You know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene and workout montage is. And what's funny is the approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Well, like terrible 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days. And while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Think of the pyrotechnics in Commando or the -the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top. Is it possible that they're trying to distract us from the completely unrealistic plotline? Kind of like a sexy-looking program with virtually no performance transfer? This is exactly why Power Athlete has been battling the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like Field Strong and Bedrock is unparalleled. 
We chose to further refine our templates to create Grindstone, Jack Street, Lean Enable, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Okay, here's where the shameless plug comes in. A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic, who have been with us every step of the way and are equally dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the absolute best technology. When you join a power athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing you should do is take a giant sigh of relief. Seriously, because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become part of a community of like-minded folks who all want the same thing, performance. And if this whole 80s movie metaphor thing makes no sense to you because you were born after 1990, simply substitute Star Wars episodes one through three. Who has the time or the patience for an all-show, no-go imposter program? Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to empower your performance today. Now back to the show. I'm curious about the, the the dosage. So here's where my question's coming from. I get the opportunity to spend two hours a week with some middle school age kids for some sports practice. Okay. And we see some tempers flare, some negative um, self-criticism occur if they miss a shot or things like that. So if I have two hours of mm-hmm. opportunity to teach them some self-compassion versus the school, the parents, and all this other negative energy, is that enough? Well, I mean, hopefully, if you can just drop some ideas into their minds, again, it really is a mindset. And so if they start to adopt the mindset and kind of see the benefits benefits of it, then hopefully they'll start to do it um, more on their own. And by the way, in coaching context, a really good kind of doorway in is to have the kids think about, well, what would you want an ideal supportive coach to say to you? Like, would, would the ideal coach say, oh, don't worry about it? No, because that, they wouldn't teach you anything. But would the ideal coach say, you're stupid, you know, you can't do this, get off the team? That's not an ideal coach either. So most people have an idea of, well, what would be, what, what can I imagine might be the ideally supportive thing I would hear a coach say to me? which is usually a lot of clarity, a lot of information, being tough, but fair, you know, kind, supportive, but not too soft, right? Whatever the ideas of what you think would work for you from coming from an external coach, you can have a coach inside your own head, you know, giving you that, that same support, giving you that same clarity um, in a way that, that's helpful. We actually, in, in our research, we show that athletes, when they think of like, what helps them be more self-compassionate? It's thinking of an ideally compassionate, wise, good coach. It's like a, a good vehicle for them to internalize the messages. Is there a, um, a division between like uh, extrinsic and intrinsic motivation? I mean, like the athletes that are, um, you know, don't need some outside pressure from the coach of being like, you know, I'm going to, you know, run, make you run laps until you throw up unless you do this, opposed yes, from yes. players who are, like very intrinsically motivated to do well. So, I mean, is there like a, 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 cause I, yeah. 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 So yeah. I mean, so self-compassion is is strongly linked to intrinsic motivation. Like if you look at it in the research, people who are more self-compassionate, they use intrinsic motivation 
more than extrinsic motivation, right? So they rely on doing things because they want to. They have a learning goals. They do, do, they do things because they want to learn and grow, not because they just want to perform and look good to others. Um, they do have more grit. They've got a, a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset, meaning they really believe that with hard work, they can change and grow as opposed to just thinking, you know, I'm good or I'm bad and that's just the way it is. Yeah, so it's, it's very strongly linked to all of that. And, and actually, Angela, I'm friends with Angela Duckworth. She, she says she thinks that self-compassion is probably the number one factor for developing grit. Oh, <laughs> self-compassion gives you grit. She, right? she also a former alumni of Power Athlete Radio. So she yes. was on, yeah. Cool. So. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, that uh, that like uh, um, intrinsic deal. It was really interesting, and I, I just observed this, and like not so much in the NFL because um, to get to the NFL and be a player, you have to have a ton of intrinsic motivation. But in college, uh -huh. they would give scholarships. Guys would come in, and you know they'd peter out or whatnot. But I, there was always a lot of extrinsic motivation, like punishment. Do this if if you don't do this, this will happen. And I always kind of start, you, you kind of see this after a couple of years that there's like this huge divergence. The guys that are intrinsic and motivated, that get up, that want to do well, that train, that work hard, that's meaningful, um, end up doing dramatically better, not only in school, but just have a better outcome than the guys where it's like this external pressure. And I remember uh, um, I, I asked one of my offensive line coaches and he he was of the mind that, uh, well, his, his mentality was more like, um, I guess you could almost say like the, uh, the whip on the back, you know, like, yes. like the motivation, I'm, I'm going to beat you guys on the back. And he's like, it's a very rare player that I don't have to whip into, you know, in, you know, to, to go in that direction. Uh -huh. And, uh, the guys that were intrinsically motivated ended up surviving, going playing the NFL. And the guys that were extrinsic ended up getting hurt and just breaking into a million pieces and like still having problems since thereafter. So I always wonder if, uh, you know, and, uh, Angela's book is great, but like how, like, how do you emphasize that at a young age? Is that through self-compassion or how do you, I mean, or is that just something that just happens chemically or some, for some reason that some people have more intrinsic motivation? Yeah. I mean, it's a really qu good question about why some people have more intrinsic motivation than others. I, you know, whenever there's a question, like, is it nature or nurture? Usually the answer is always both. Sure. <laughs> it's some combination of both. A lot of it is our environment, you know, or, or did our parents give us a lot of rewards and punishments as opposed to just kind of encouraging us and supporting us? Um, you know, what was our school environment like? What was our peer environment like? But it's also possible that there just may be some differences in how the brain works. You know, for instance, people with a, a lot of anxiety or feel really threatened all the time, they may react a little bit different than people who are kind of just by, by their nervous system, a little more calmer, more centered. So, um, you know, I don't, it's, it's a hard question. I wish I could answer it, uh, no, <laughs> but I it's mean, interesting to think about. But I think parents, we know certain parents can help, but can't control it, but parents can help, help have their kids have intrinsic motivation. Yeah, no, I mean, as an NFL player, and I had a guy recently ask me this, like, like, what do you think was most important for getting there? And I was like, well, there was a lot of luck. I mean, there was genetics on the other side. I mean, you know, if I yeah. wasn't 6'6", six, six, I probably wouldn't have got to play. Um, but the other factor was like, uh, nobody had to tell me to do anything. Like I, yeah. like, I believed that like, there was a, a, like, I was on the path to greatness if I just followed it. And I knew that like, nobody could help me on that journey. I mean, you'd have mentors or people you talk to, but you have to walk that. And I always, yeah. uh, and when I got to college, it was no different. And 
but then I like I realized you know once I go to college there's all these different people from different places and as you know Berkeley's such a diverse place uh, that it was pretty amazing for me to go to and um, not not only play but also you know do all my grad or undergrad and graduate work uh, and just be around so many different people but the one thing that was universal uh, to the the students that I encountered that were non-football is that everybody was highly motivated. Yeah. Um, like nobody there was just like the schlub on the counter. Like, Hey, I'm here for any reason. Like everybody was like highly motivated. And when you went into classes, it was extremely competitive. Uh, people wanted to do well. And I found that much more exciting, uh, than mm-hmm. in high school where I just felt really bored where they were teaching to the lowest common denominator. I go to college and they're teaching to the top common denominator and that top mm-hmm. of the, the bell curve. And, uh, for me, that was, um, extremely like invigorating, exciting and competitive and whatnot. And so much so that, uh, for my kids, um, I started observing, they were in public school and we actually pulled them out and put them in a, like a a more, um, advanced private school because they were so bored. And my daughter was like, well, the teacher teaches something and then she spends three days explaining it to other kids. And I got it in like three minutes. So then she's like, I just sit there and draw and play. And I feel very like unexcited about school. And like, as I was hearing that, I like took me back to my schooling and realized how bored I was in high school and in junior mm-hmm. high. So I, I would say when I, I hear you, with, uh, the only thing maybe to, um, like in places like Berkeley is you also get a problem with perfectionism, right? So sometimes even among p- kids who are highly, highly motivated, they're kind of motivated by perfectionism. <laughs> And so you got to be a little careful because some people who are perfectionists, they may actually achieve a lot, but they may do themselves a lot of mental harm in the process, right? So it's kind of a balance, a balance between trying to do your absolute best because you care, but not beating yourself up when you get the A minus, you know? And so if you could kind of thread that line between shooting for the absolute best but when you fail to meet that best, when your best, you want to keep going, you want to keep trying, but you want to make sure that the, the, the rocket fuel for your motivation is kindness and care and support as opposed to, um, you know, criticizing yourself. So the perfectionism, remember at Berkeley, is, is really rampant and a lot of people are pretty unhappy as a result. So it's, uh, it's yeah. both. No, yeah. I, I, I definitely would say that that's probably a, a pretty accurate deal. But I mean, um, uh it, it, you know, I mean, it was, a, a what I really enjoyed was like a, the competition aspect, like the ability uh-huh. to go in and be able to like, you know, not only on the field, but also in these, in classes where, you know, Hey, this is, you know, they're going to give 20 A's and 30 B's and to go in there and compete for grades. Like that competition is what I thrived on. And whereas other people, like the pressure was almost too much for them. Like, uh, the girl who was, I graduated with a girl who was valedictorian at my high school who went to Berkeley. And um, was basically in her second year living on, a, uh, living on Telegraph in pajamas, had a complete breakdown. So the parents yeah. had to drive up and pick her up and take her home. And, you know, I mean, it was way too much pressure for her. Yeah. Whereas, Same thing happened to our high school valedictorian. <clears throat> Just wigged out and cashed it all in, got out of college, wherever he went, some Ivy League spot. I can't remember. Yeah. Recall. And, and so that, those, you know, those stories kind of talk about, I mean, I know it's difficult because at the highest levels of athletics, you have to be super competitive and super high pressure and all that. But I suppose people also need to think, well, what's right for me? I mean, what's really more important? Do I want to be happy? Do I want to live a fulfilling life? Or do I want to put so much pressure on myself to be the top and to be the valedictorian and this and that, that it actually 
harms myself. You know, yeah, Kristen, and I guess what there's uh, we've talked about this. And it used to be a point in the seminar. We, we, we did a traveling seminar series that ultimately achieving the, the highest levels of performance and in, in, in competing at the highest levels. Like, I don't think anybody makes any illusions that like it's the best for health and longevity. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a competitive window and you're kind yeah. of you're kind of signing this contract like, hey, like. I'm getting paid good money for this, you know, in, in the pro I, sports yeah. domain, but even at, at, like in the, the paradigm of, let's say, youth sports, like the more competitive you are realistically, the more wear and tear you're taking down physically. So it right. it probably isn't shocking that you, you have that type of uh, destructive behavior emotionally or psychologically as well, but it's like there's no plan to unwind that or compartmentalize it, you know, and I think maybe that could be... Uh, a strategy. I don't know if that sounds like a good. Yeah, no, no, I think that that's true. I, I think we do have different parts, and it may be that in one area of your life, you just need to, you know, just be relentless and just absolute pressure. But then maybe you've got some downtimes, and then you can give yourself some what you need, really, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that it is possible to compartmentalize like that in a way that it's be it's better than never taking a break and giving yourself right, compassion, right? right? Is is success a player in this? Like I, I mean, uh, I've run into this where like you meet people and like they never win, kind of like these guys when we play ping pong. Oh, John, oh. I knew it! How dare you! <laughs> but like that, like the idea of like uh, small victories, um, you know, the idea like, hey, I did this one well, and is that a part of compassion? Where I think people always focus on maybe the big failures, but maybe layering it with uh, some smaller victories as a way to feel better about yourself. I mean. Hmm, how do I put this? Self-compassion isn't really a way to feel better about yourself. That's <laughs> okay. kind, of, kind of more self-esteem, you know? Um, self-compassion is really just, we just kind of support ourselves along this journey. And we try to help ourselves and not suffer and be kind to ourselves and ask ourselves, what do I really need to be happy? Or what do I really need to alleviate my suffering? And then trying to meet that need, whatever that looks like. Um, and so it may look like different, you know, the answer, what do I need depends on well, what your goals are and who you are in life. And so it's not a one size fits all answer. Um, you know, sometimes it might mean just kind of becoming a compassionate mess. You know, if, if your goal starts to be, <laughs> that's my goal right now, right? I just want to be a compassionate mess. I, you know, I try to be better. I try to deal with my personality foibles, but like, I'm done with therapy. I'm good enough. You know, I'm a good enough parent. I'm, I'm good enough. My goal is really to embrace my experience with, with love and open heartedness and a, a sense of connection to the larger whole. Uh, hasn't seemed to slow me down in terms of my ability to achieve. I'm, I'm doing pretty well, you know, but it's that my goal isn't to achieve. Mm -hmm. My goal is just to be compassionate and kind to myself in the process. And, you know, but that, that, that may be different for different people at different points in their life. Um, you know, well, that's I, a, that's a great that, distinction. No, I, I, that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it'll probably take me at least another four hours of this conversation to really break it all down, but I feel like I'm on the path. Yeah. <laughs> Kristen, I'm curious when you first discovered self-compassion and then deep dove into the research, was there this delineation between self-esteem or did your findings, experience and research help divide these two and make clear outlines for both and can i maybe uh, lay, layer on to to texas question like what have the milestones been in this area of research yeah. right 
Right. So, well, so first of all, I mean, I, I certainly didn't come up with the idea of self-compassion. I learned about it in, in Buddhist practice, right? I, I studied um, with a group that followed the teachers of, uh, teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a great Zen Buddhist master um, who talks a lot about self-compassion. And, um, but at that point, no one had written about self-compassion in the academic literature. No one had studied it. Some people had talked about self-acceptance, which is related, but kind of different. And of course, people had started writing about mindfulness a little bit at that point, but there wasn't a lot. But no one had actually like defined what self-compassion is or measured it. Um, and so my contribution was I, I kind of created a model of what I think self-compassion is. And that, that's my three component model, mindfulness, kindness, and a sense of common humanity. And then I created a scale to measure it. That was published back in 2003. Um, and that was kind of the start of the research ball rolling. And then for many years, it was just like me and my grad students doing some work. And then other people started to um, do research. For instance, um, two scholars at, at Berkeley, um, Serena Chan and Juliana Brianes, did a fascinating series of studies, experimental studies on self-compassion and motivation. Like they had students, like they had them all fail a really hard vocabulary exam. And then some of the students, they, they gave them instructions to be self-compassionate about the failure. The, another group, they said, hey, you must be smart. You got into Berkeley, you know, self-esteem boost. And the other, the other groups, they had nothing. And they found that those students who were told to be self-compassionate about the failure actually studied longer and harder and did better when they had the chance to take the exam again. And so I, I'd say that's kind of another milestone in that instead of just people looking at self-compassion by you know scores on my scale and to see how it correlates with other things, we started doing really great experimental research to see how self-compassion changes behavior. Um, and now we have a lot of self-compassion training programs um, where you can actually train people to be more self-compassionate in their daily life and see how that impacts them over time. Um, and now there's, there's almost like 3,500 studies on self-compassion. I can't even keep up with it, it's crazy. So it's really exploding, very exciting. I've read an influential coaching book in my perspective, Psycho-Cybernetics from Maxwell Maltz years ago and then applied it, but he was qualified himself as what he was teaching was science of self-esteem, but it was back from the 60s, but basic concepts. I don't know if you've, you've heard of him or the book. I haven't, you know, and by the way, I don't want to give self-esteem a, a completely bad rap. Unconditional self-esteem is good, right? So realizing that you're unconditionally worthy, even when you fail, you're worthy, you know, despite your ups and downs, you're worthy. That's actually healthy self-esteem. The yeah. unhealthy self-esteem is the conditional thing, this conditional sense of worth that's dependent on being better than others, this contingent on being approved of by others, and this contingent on success. That type of self-esteem is not so helpful, but yeah, there, there's the, healthy self-esteem for sure. How, how I applied it was essentially aiming to get a, a actual representation of the athlete. So you get these kids that are too high or too good for coaching and criticism. And then they, you know, they fake the limp if they lose the race, those kind of guys. And then the kids that genuinely put their head down or sat on the bench and you could not pull them back into interest into the game and the competition. Right. So it's finding different approaches to all these individuals to try to get them level set to then provide them this constructive feedback. And it was well, you know, it's two, because three years in college. Not everybody's motivated in the same ways. Well, I mean, that especially was especially uh, at division 
three. Well, that I mean, that was I mean, it was either General Patton or MacArthur, but it was uh, you know the idea of like, um, you know, like a great leader knows how to motivate individuals differently. Like, because not everybody you know comes from the same place, not everybody has the same motivation. So, like yeah. that ability to get like people of different. I guess motivations all moving in the same direction towards the same task and finding different ways. Like, you know, some people you got to pat and some people you got to kick and uh, knowing when and which to do it is like the mark of leadership. So all those leadership books talk about that. Cool. Well, then you guys can, you can check it out and let me know what you find, how to, <laughs> what, what works in terms of the athletes you coach or the people you coach, what works to help them to help them be more self-compassionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. I think there's a million different ways to get there. It's not going to look the same way for everyone. And um, probably takes time, and it probably changes as you, you know, as you age out of one strategy and, and into another. Maybe I mean, but I, I'm just intrigued. I'm intrigued on like the, you know, the kid side, just well, being new dad. And- I'm just wondering if, um, if like the self compassion, like if you don't have some form of like major failure or something happens, like I stumble. And I put myself into a situation where now I have to do this, uh, you know, let's say like go in a different direction because what I was doing. So I, I wonder if there is like one polarizing event and the only that I don't think this is a good analogy, but like almost like an alcoholic where, you know, they talk in, uh, you know, with the alcoholic and the AA, like they have to hit rock bottom and like, you know, certain people's rock bottom is a little bit other people's is like, you know the core of the earth, they got to fall so far. So I wonder for the self, uh, self-compassion, if it comes kind of, uh, you know, when somebody hits right, hit or hits rock bottom, something happens, some, you know, monumentous event, and I have this failure, and the tools that I had in place before are no longer allowing me to process and move ahead. Mm-hmm. I think that's true for some people. Um, but also, it's not always just failure. I mean, some people, they get cancer, or they have a relationship breakup, or, you know, basically any, any form of suffering. Failure is one form of suffering, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of forms of suffering in life, right? And I think different people get there through different means. Um, some people are, are naturally more self-compassionate. You know, if you were lucky enough to have really you know, good supportive parents that you're securely attached to them. Some people are pretty kind and supportive to themselves and they may not even need to explicitly practice Mm -hmm. self-compassion. Although we do find for almost everyone, it helps when it's explicit because even if you're, if you're really healthy, you know, something like COVID hits or, 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 you know, or you get in a car accident or something really big hits, what do you do in the moment when you're feeling a lot of pain? And this is a way of really relating to yourself in a moment of pain in a constructive manner, which is again, just being mindful of the pain, not lost in it, not avoiding it, remembering that you aren't alone, it's part of the human condition and giving yourself love, if we can say such an unscientific word, you know, really the, the, we might say the, the power of self-compassion is love, is warmth, is care, is connectedness. Um, and everyone needs that, even if they were lucky enough to have it from their parents. It's something that continually feeds us throughout our lives. Uh, but yeah, it's really interesting to think about how the different ways that people get there. Um, it's very fascinating. I'm feeling like uh, just today, John, I ran home, garage door was broken, had a garage door guy come out, and I'll get into that story you gave with him you a guys hug? afterwards. No. <laughs> but we, I had uh, lunch with Ru- Ruby and Ash, nice. and we we were sitting at like an island, and you know, classic dad move. Just Ash is like, "Hey, should we put her in like the 
baby chair? Like, no, that, this baby sits fine. I've been watching her sit for months. Falls off. Oh, she kicked, she kicked the island and tipped the chair back. <laughs> so she, like, did one of the teetering things and fell down. And, like, you know, Ashley went into immediate, like, panic mode. I'm like, you, go to the room. She's not crying yet. Like, <laughs> and the baby, she didn't know what had happened. She didn't bonk her head or anything. She just kind of, like, rolled elegantly. Very nice, very nice roll. And, uh, but then she got really scared. And then I just kind of sat down next to her. She lit up. And I don't know if she knows what I'm saying, but I'm trying, like, I feel like I kind of took the playbook we had here on, like, in the moment, the resiliency reset. I sat down next to her. I said, hey, I, I know it's scary. It hurts. That's okay. Let's So you didn't breathe, yell and call her stupid? Breathe. And then, what no, an idiot. Yeah. What'd you do that, yeah. you moron? We got up. We walked a couple laps around the island, right? I picked her up after that, gave her a little bit of love. Man, mm-hmm. I'm a pro. I could do this all day. Uh, if my kid would have fallen, I would have just gone up and walked away. <laughs> I, <know. And> I, <laughs> I found that uh, if um, uh, like if I pretend like everything's fine, they just get up and they brush themselves off and mm-hmm. keep working. Mm-hmm. So like you can tell uh, like first time parents like the kid falls like oh, and you can tell if somebody has a, like three kids, all of a sudden one falls and both parents just walk away. I'm like oh, I can see you got a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, it was like <laughs> we gave the pause to try to like maybe let her figure it out, and then it was going it was going quick to negative town. But I had to get Ashley out of there. She was in panic mode oh. for sure contagious <laughs> Kristen you mentioned one of your students is creating this resilient reset with athletes is there yeah any it's other... called fail better I love fail it better yep has fail it, better <laughs> has there been any other cool applications of your tools that other kids have tried like with musicians or anything like that to help empower a population yeah well so uh, for instance we just developed uh, a self-compassion training program for healthcare providers uh, which we're now we now we're teaching that online at the Center for Mindful Self Compassion because you know the incredible stress our healthcare providers are under, um, and the thing about healthcare providers is they don't have really time to like practice much or to like take courses or to meditate. So we developed a course where it's one hour a week for six weeks, and we feed them lunch. They do it at their lunchtime, so they don't have to take time out of their day and just um, tools that they can use. For instance, one of the things that's, that's really hard about being a healthcare provider is if you're an empathic person, and most people are empathic if they go into healthcare, and you're with someone who's in pain, like a COVID patient or someone who's physically suffering in some way, you know, the pain centers of your brain are being activated. So we can actually feel other people's emotions when we're connected to them. And that's, that can be incredibly draining over time um, and it contributes to burnout. So we teach them in the moment, first of all, instead of just being focused on helping the patient, really acknowledging, wow, this is really hard for me. Now I'm feeling all this, my, my, my mirror neurons are buzzing with their pain. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling stressed. You know, they just take a moment. We, we teach like physical gestures. You can put your hand on your heart or your face. Or the reason we teach physical gestures is because it works at the level of physiology. You know, your body, our bodies are designed by evolution to respond to warm touch in a way that helps us feel relaxed and we calm down. So, you know, you can just put your hand somewhere in your body um, and you kind of calm down. This is really hard for me right now. I'm kind of, but it's kind of part of life. There's nothing wrong with me for feeling this way. This is normal. Well, can I, can I be kind to myself? And they kind of imagine that they're, you know, being there for themselves and also for the patient. So in other words, they learn how to practice self-compassion on the job as they're doing caregiving Right, and what we found is they they have much uh, lower levels of stress, um, more self-compassion, more compassion for others, um, less burnout, and it seems to be really effective. 
Um, so we've got that population. We're working on a few others, like um, someone's teaching it to police. Um, it's taught a lot to veterans. Actually, it's something that they taught in the VA because for veterans working with PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from combat, they find that those veterans who learn to be more self-compassionate, they just do a lot better. Um, they're, they're, they have less PTSD. They're less likely to, you know, attempt suicide, to use alcohol as a way of coping. Um, you know, when they can kind of be there for themselves with the trauma of what they'd experience in a really kind, supportive manner in a connected way, it really helps. Um, so it's all sorts of things are happening. Oh, we've got a program for educators as well, for teachers who also have a really tough job. So um, it's just, it's very exciting. The self-compassion world is just exploding right now. Um, and so I'm sure it won't be too long till we've got a, a program for athletes, something that's like has a protocol. We aren't quite there yet, but we're working on them. There's, there's also a lot of research on self-compassion for athletes actually showing how helpful it is for athletes in terms of motivation um, and dealing productively with failure. So what about like physical pain? I mean, um, you know, like what yes, are the- this, Yep, yeah, there's, yep, got, <laughs> we actually just did an fMRI study of people with chronic physical pain who took, took our mindful self-compassion program, which we developed. Um, and it actually physically reduced the pain levels. It helped them cope with the pain, but they also experienced less pain. And it led to changes in the brain, um, which had to do with like emotion regulation, like how they related to the physical pain. And so when you have physical pain, actually being able to give yourself kindness and warmth because it hurts. Again, you don't want to get lost in it. You don't want to wallow in it, but you want to acknowledge it, kind of accept that it's part of life and give yourself warmth and kindness. You know, and, and warmth and kindness is, an, is one of the active ingredients that make thing, makes you more able to cope, right? Support, think about it. As human beings, we evolved to be able to do better when we feel supported. You know, as, as babies, we, we do better when we're supported by our parents. As community members, we do better when we're supported by our, our fellow teammates or community members. So if we can give that warmth and support to ourselves, in addition to getting it from other people, it's just gonna make us that much uh, stronger and more resilient. It's interesting. No, I, I mean, pain, <laughs> uh, pain is, um, I mean, I've told you guys the story at that nauseum, but um, I made a, I always viewed pain kind of like an old friend coming to visit. Uh -huh. like, like I just kind of made, uh, made peace with it and I knew that it was going to hurt. And I played with a lot of guys who chase, who, who ran from the pain yeah. and, you know, painkillers, alcohol, whatever they could do to kind of mask it. And they asked me and I'm like, I know it's going to hurt. And that's my receipt for, for a job well done. And, uh, you know, when it starts to hurt, it just feels like an old friend's coming to visit. I'm like, come on in old friend, sit down. It's going to hurt a while and then it's going to go away. And, um, I think like just that mental, uh, like that change of perspective where it's like, um, and I, I remember when I retired from the NFL, I ran into a, a guy played who played in the NFL about the same amount of time. And we went to college and he, he asked me, he's like, man, um, uh, you know, was anything really hard about retirement? And I was like, yeah, you know what? Like, I think you just have to shift your focus. And he's like, did it take you a long time to get off the painkillers? I was like, I never took those painkillers. And he was like, oh man, I was chewing like seven to 10 Vicodins a day. And it was how I was masking the pain. And I was like, man, I, I just looked at it like, uh, like an old friend coming to visit. And I thought that if I masked the pain, then, uh, it would prevent me from dealing with it, which at some point you either, you either have to deal with it or you die. And, um, I just chose early on that, like, just like an old friend coming to visit. And he was like amazed. And I, I think today the guys, and this is purely observational. I have no research on this, 
but I noticed in the NFL that the guys who uh, took the most amount of painkillers are the ones that seem to have the most amount of problems, you know, both mentally, emotionally, whatnot, after they get done playing. So yeah. I always tell young guys, I'm like, just, and, you know, I mean, it kind of makes sense when I say, I'm like, you got to make a deal with the devil, you know, mm-hmm. that it's going to hurt. And it's just like an old friend coming to visit. They're going to stay a while and then they're going to leave. And as long as you're okay with that, then you can do this job. But if you get in there thinking you're going to mask it, you're going to end up like a broken into a million pieces. Well, do you know, um, warmth so if you look at the um, parasympathetic nervous system feelings of warmth it actually releases natural opiates that's why it feels so good when someone you love gives you a hug think about that warm squishy feeling you get right it's actually because your body's releasing natural opiates right and so when you're kind to yourself if you put your hand on your heart and say oh man this really hurts okay i'm here for myself you know just whatever tender words you would say of support you're actually changing your physiology in a way that decreases the pain. And it can be for um, um, physical or also emotional pain. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it as natural care, natural uh, painkillers, <laughs> drug-free painkillers. Yeah, regulated by the, the body. Regulated by the body, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. Instead of the FDA, the... Um, well, like, instead of the sports med docs. Like, yeah. Uh, you should be able to play <laughs> um, with that broken leg. There you yeah. go. Dak How about the HDA, uh, yeah. uh, my heartfelt uh, <laughs> association? <laughs> oh, yeah, Dak Prescott. Man, he had a spiral fracture. Ooh, oh, man. Oh, I know. Horrible. Uh, Horrible. People are like, oh, he'll be back. I'm like, in a year, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I watched that injury. Uh, a lot of dudes never came back from that. Mm-hmm. So that's um, hopefully he does. Wish him all the best. Yeah, man. Awesome. See anything? Else? I'm a Cowboys fan. So. Are you? Uh-oh. Yeah, I am. <sighs> oh boy. Welcome to live in Austin. I'm not. I'm not yeah, a Cowboys. I hate the Cowboys. I don't <laughs> hate them. I hate them. I mean, I'm a Chicago Bears fan, so I was. I feel your pain. <laughs> I played for the Eagles, and we used to come beat up on on the Cowboys constantly. I just, I, I never <laughs> understood America's team. Like, I never, I, I just never got it. And there is, there is. You feel that way about the Longhorns, also? Um, I, yes. uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I really do. Okay, and, time to go guys. Bye. Yeah, exactly. Thank and you I'll, me. and I'll tell you why. Um, I played with a lot of guys that were Texas guys in the NFL and, uh, only a few of them I thought were worth their salt. I thought that there was a lot of self-esteem and a lot of, uh, over self-esteem with a lot of the Texas guys I played with. And, uh, I just, uh, you know, for a, a, a program that has no reason to not be the best in, in college football. I mean, they have an incredible alumni, like it's in a good town. Like they have like, like everything, like the facilities, like all of the pieces are in place and they absolutely are awful. Like I, I, I just can't let like as a, as a football player and as a, a, you know, this, I mean, like it just, it, I can't wrap my head around it. And like, I, I don't know if like the, the alumni is too influential. So like, I mean, geez, they were talking about, I mean, they've, they've had this coach, what, three years and already talking to this guy's on the hot seat. Like you have to let somebody come in and actually get a draft class and give them the time. So like, I'm frustrated that Texas, I think should be better, but they yeah. don't give people the opportunity because they're so impatient at all times. So that's kind of why I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I just don't like the fact that they just roll through their coaches too much. Sounds like you're just jealous of their self-compassion. To be honest with you, I, 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 I totally am. I totally am. Uh, you know, I'd like to. I mean, it's a great school. I mean, if uh, like now, like you know, uh, I was, 
I never imagined I was going to play in the NFL. It really wasn't on my radar. I just wanted to go to the best school that recruited me so that one day I got to hang that degree on my wall and I knew I went to a good place. And uh, that's kind of why I selected Berkeley over UCLA and some of the, and USC and the other schools to go play at because I felt like they would have weight in that. And, and it was an incredible opportunity. Well, UT's learning to fail better, so they'll <laughs> <That's right. laughs> improve. They well, need those failures to well, learn to fail better. What, they, what we've learned about UT is they're trying to fix software problems with hardware solutions by just building bigger and better and nicer facilities without getting in there and fixing the software problems. Mm-hmm. The whole, we're just kidding about UT. Yeah. We're just kidding. No, I'm Go Bears. Yeah, we're, we're running out of time. Uh, Kristen, yeah, thanks okay. so much. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And thank you, Pilot right. Nation. Uh, bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Time is running out for you to head to wadesarmy.org to join the fight against neuroblastoma. Don't forget that Wade's Day is November 12th, and you can still donate. You can still get your official Wade's Army uniform. Until next time, bye!